Heal us to get help. What? Get help. No. Come on, you love it. I hate it. It's great. It works every time. It's humiliating. Do you have a better plan? No. We're doing it. We are not doing get help. Get help, please. My podcast contains adult content and spoilers. Get help. Oh, classic. <sighs> Still hate it. It's humiliating. Well, not for me, it's not. And now, binge mode Marvel. And then, one day, he decided to become a benevolent king. To foster peace, to protect life. To have you. I understand why you're angry and why my sister and technically have a claim to the throne. And believe me, I would love for someone else to rule, but it can't be you. You're just... the worst. Okay, get up. You're in my seat. It sounds like you just saw Hulk in the Grand Arena. Yes! <laughs> and welcome to Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of the Ringer.com. Oh! What a great website. <laughs> the best. Joining me today, now that he's finished printing more pamphlets for Korg. It's your favorite contest of champions, Gladiator, Jason Concepcion. Mal, bit of a promotional disaster, that one. But at least we had enough pamphlets for Binge Mode Marvel, where we're exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four of the MCU nears. Please make the journey to Shady Acres with us. Going to need to update that Google map pretty soon <laughs> with that one. Yeah. By following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings or we won't let you play. Get help. It's humiliating anyway. Don't you don't want to do that. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive. Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly for free exclusively on Spotify. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to share your thoughts on the unearthed Asgardian murals. And don't forget to head to therigger.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. Nice and cool if you're traveling to Muspelheim. Yeah, you need a breathable fabric if you're heading to that realm, for sure. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we swam through the lakes of Queens while chatting about Spider-Man Homecoming. And what lakes they are, Jason. Beautiful. And today, we're diving deep. Deep, deep, deep into 2017's Thor Ragnarok. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and the wider Marvel canon. Yes. So keep your eyes peeled for the devil's anus. It's the big, big red one. Can't miss it. For the record, I didn't know it was called that when I chose it. Because it's time to head to Sakaar right after this. Piss off, ghost! Mal, every great king had an executioner, not just to execute people, but also to execute the plot summaries. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Thor Ragnarok by opening the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Rooms! 
Muspelheim. Thor. God of thunder. Trapped. Sitting in a cage with a skeleton. A prisoner, though a willing prisoner, of Surtur. Surtur's destiny, known as Ragnarok, is to destroy Asgard by fire. And speeches. He's great at the speeches. After he places his crown in the eternal flame to unlock his true power. And yes, Jason, thank you for asking. It is a crown, not a big eyebrow. After a short fight, Thor slays Surtur, or so it seems. In his weakened state. He was weak at that time. He hadn't been training. It was just relaxing. It's like kicking it back. Pretty luxurious posture in his fire throne. If he had a full camp, mm-hmm. I think it would be yep. a, it would be a tougher fight. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Thor takes his crown and escapes severed dragon head and toe back to Asgard via the Bifrost. Back in Asgard, Thor finds Scourge Running the Bifrost. Where's Heimdall? He's been exiled for treason by Odin, who Thor quickly realizes actually Loki in disguise. Whoops. Except for that little bit of subterfuge, Loki's reign honestly seems surprisingly without criminality. (laughs) He mostly lays on divans, eating grapes, uh, watching plays which he commissioned about himself uh, in the shadow of the statue that he also commissioned about himself. Compelling play. Thought yes. it moved well. He got Damon, which is <laughs> like to get. Yeah. That's a big get. Yeah. Great costumes. Nice stage design. Also, sure, as Thor mentions, the realms are once again in complete and total chaos. But the bathrobe that Loki's in looks comfortable. So who's winning, really? Thor demands to see their father. Loki takes Thor to a Manhattan elder care facility, which, unfortunate update here for Loki, is in the process of being demolished. Apparently somebody forgot to call. Maybe Loki, like Thor, also does not have a cell phone or a computer. The pair are waylaid by Doctor Strange, who quite naturally considers Loki a significant magical threat to Earth. He's on the list that Doc Strange keeps. Why He's on the no-fly list. He's on the no-fly lo- list, folks. I love the moment when Thor thinks that Loki became the little address card, taps it with yeah. the umbrella. <laughs> Mjolnir disguises yeah. the umbrella. Loki, Loki. After some back and forth, a mug of tea quickly transformed into a tankard of mead that refills. Strange opens a portal to Odin's location in Norway. They find the Allfather staring with his one good eye out at the sea. Shocked he was awake. He's trying, he's milking every second now. The Allfather is consumed with sadness and guilt. The sadness is for Queen Frigga killed by Malekith in Thor the Dark World. The guilt? Oh! <laughs> Just the little thing about how uh, he locked up his daughter Hela in some pocket universe somewhere after she had helped him win the Nine Realms. Not a big deal. This is a tough one for Odin. Gotta be honest. <laughs> Surprise, folks! Odin's life force 
fades and he tells his sons that their sister Hela draws her strength to the Mazgard. Mm-hmm. And he disappears in a cloud of golden light that looks like fireflies. Wails for Odin the Allfather. May he get the rest that he so duly deserves. <laughs> I don't feel so good. <sighs> oh, God. Petey wails for and Odin's then, communication, which died long please. ago. <laughs> also love that he's just like there in like dockers and a... It's an incredible retirement. Legitimately like the most (laughs) the most I am retired fit of like any god ever. King of King of Asgard and Fit King to boot. (laughs) He's like wearing crocs and khakis. (laughs) Unbelievable stuff from him. And of course, just then, family reunion time, Hella Mm. arrives. She is not super interested, it turns out, in getting to know her brothers no. and easily best the combined might of Thor and Loki, She's catching Mjolnir in midair and strong. crumbling it between her fingers like a poorly made shortbread that Paul it's Hollywood very, very tough. annihilated. You baked it too long. It's never baked. It's quite dry. <laughs> now, the flavors are good, but it's quite dry. It's quite stodgy. <laughs> I was just going to say it's stodgy. Yes. <laughs> Steve, give us some peaty whales for dear Mjolnir. I don't feel so good. Loki, cowardly as always. Yeah. The moment this- of truth. <laughs> Listen, I hate to say it because you know I love my guy. But this is feeble, cowardly, short-sighted horseshit from Loki. Stand and fight! Calls the Bifrost, at which point Bella easily throws Loki and then Thor through the Bifrost across the universe to parts briefly unknown, and then arrives on Asgard herself to rule. She, and this is not an exaggeration, takes 1.5 seconds to murder two of the Warriors three. This is very, very tough. <laughs> Hogan will get his moment later, but this yeah. is a wrap for Volstagg and shouts to Shouts to Volstagg, shouts to Fondral. Although, Zachary Levi, be free, my, my son. You are free now. You know what I saw in his eyes, other than the sweet kiss of death as Hela stabbed him? I saw the checks cashing for that one afternoon of work in Queenslanta. I'm sure he complained about Asgard-Lanta. it. Asgardlanta. <laughs> Give us a very brief PD well, Steve. Like it, it should just blip in and out as quick as their as quick as yeah. their runtime in this movie. I don't Thor finds himself on Sakaar. <laughs> a trash planet uh near various wormholes, the biggest one, of course, known as the Devil's Anus. Scrapper 142. A humanoid bounty hunter, actually an expat Asgardian Valkyrie, subdues Thor easily and sells him to the Grandmaster, an ancient, powerful, and thoroughly debauched being who forces Thor to fight as a gladiator in a little thing he likes to call the Contest of Champions. It's quite an intro for Valkyrie, tumbling off the off-ramp of the ship right into a rotting carcass. Alka. Alkyrie. Loki ended up on Sakaar as well, and 
folks, he's fitting right in. He's really <laughs> he's did. doing great. <gasps> Chaos and debauchery. He's loving it. He's made it work for him and has, in a matter of weeks, become a member of the Grandmaster's Court. <laughs> An amazing you will not ruin this for me chat between Loki and Thor. The Grandmaster tells Thor that anyone who defeats his champion can win their freedom. Thor says, all right, my guy, bring it on. I'm the God of Thunder. Not sure if you've heard. In the holding cell, after witnessing poor cuz melted into festering, stinking goo. With the melt (laughs) stick. He loves the melt stick. Thor meets Korg. Coke. A wannabe revolutionary and meek. An egg-laying insect with blades for hands. Just a delight to see Korg and Meek, our planet Hulk pals, our warbound. Love to see him. Also, I love this. I got to say, Meek in the comics, a very aggro individual. I think fairly so, considering the things that Meek has gone through and seen. But this is a much, this is a much uh, lower key. Yeah. Meeker Meek. And less verbose Meek. Yeah, this this Meek it. has figured out the exact milligram dosage for the edibles. Back on Asgard, Hela unleashes powerful <laughs> exposition. <laughs> so true. It works. It really does. <laughs> it works. Odin's daughter, indeed. This is a family trait, folks. <laughs> yeah. Long story short, Asgard's entire history is a lie. Mm. It was Hela, side by side with Odin, who carried out the conquest of the Nine Realms. Then Odin was like, uh-oh, I think Hela wants more than to just uh, be lead child of mine. She might want a little bit too much. I'm going to have to lock her away for, I don't know, maybe eternity. Tough look mm-hmm. for my guy, Odin, <laughs> who clearly didn't lose any sleep. Hela enters the crypts underneath Odin's treasure vault and using the power of the eternal flame brings an entire dead army, including Mm. her big wolf pal Fenris, back to life. Beautiful Beautiful pup. Looks like Shaggy Dog. Great to see him. Welcome back, Fenris. You didn't deserve any of this. Hela also names Scourge her executioner. Absolutely iconic scene when she asks him. To tell him her about himself. Father's a stonemason. <laughs> no, no, no. The absolute best. Tasks him with executing people and listen, we can multitask here. Let's also execute the vision, okay? Which will, uh, yes, to be fair, primarily take the form of executing people, since you asked. In the woods. Outside the city, all seeing, all hearing, presence silently stirs. Heimdall, in possession of Hofund, the sword which operates the Bifrost, protects refugees and leads a small but determined resistance. Back on Sakaar, Thor gets a haircut against his will. It looks fantastic. It looks great. And squares off against the champion in the grand arena. Guess what? The champion Mm. is actually Thor's friend and, until very recently, colleague, the Hulk. Unbelievable moment in the movie. So good. 
Thor tries to reconnect with his old pal. The Hulk is having none of it. Savage fight ensues. Thor gains the upper hand when he harnesses the power of lightning without Mjolnir. But Thor's victory is literally short-circuited by the Grandmaster who triggers the restraining implant. Absolute horseshit. I mean, if Thor you had money fight. on that, fucking go nuts. In the gladiatorial quarters, Thor tries to reconnect with Hulk, who is Big balls baby. out <laughs> after a hot tub cleanse. <laughs> oh, I love the smoldering fire exchange. Great scene. Thor learns that Hulk is always Hulk now. The Jade Giant arrived on Sakaar in the Quinjet, which he boarded to remove himself from Earth at the end of Age of Ultron. And he's been here all along. Thor wants to use the jet to escape. Contacts Heimdall for a little on-the-ground scouting report. Real Bill Belichickian, can-you-film-practice-for-me vibes here. <laughs> the Keeper of the Bifrost tells Thor to make his way off Sakaar through a doorway. Which one, Jay? Try the biggest. Try the biggest. It's the biggest one. The God of Thunder asks Valkyrie, whose real name is Brunhilde, for help taking back Asgard from Hela. Hela is too powerful, she tells Thor, and tells the God of Thunder the story about how Odin sent the Valkyries to enforce Hela's banishment, and the goddess of death just wiped them out with fucking ease. Thor uses some quick thinking and quick hands to steal the implant remote control back from Brunhilde. He then removes the implant from his neck. Some impressive work from Thor in this I movie. Mean, I didn't think he had that kind of guile in him. Thor makes his escape after a brief bowling ball to the head moment. Recovers quickly. Heads for the Quinjet. But before he can take off, Hulk, it's who still, wants Thor to stay, he wants his friend stuff. to stay. stay. It's really sweet. Stay! <laughs> <laughs> Wrecks the jet. And in so doing, accidentally triggers a video message from Natasha, causing him to transform at last, two years later, back into Bruce. Banner, who is, of course, nude. The Grandmaster launches a manhunt for Hulk and Thor, enlisting Loki and Valkyrie to lead the pursuit. But, you know, Valkyrie knows exactly who Loki is, and so the two end up fighting. The God of Lies magically triggers Brunhilde's memory of Hela's slaughter of her sisters and her lover, her conscience reawakened. She finds Thor and Banner and decides to help them escape so she can take revenge on Hela or die trying. As a peace offering, she brings them quite a surprise, folks, Loki in chains. And it's really him. Thor threw an object at his head to confirm. <laughs> had to be sure. I love when they're all like, listen, we can't let him out. He just threatened to kill me. Yeah, he threatened to kill me just a, 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 like a minute ago. And then Thor's like, yeah, one time he was, he turned into a snake and he knows I love snakes and I pick it up. And then he went, ah, and he turned, it was him and he stabbed me. We were eight. <laughs> the newly christened Revengers, good stuff from Thor here, free Korg and Meek and the other gladiators and steal one of the Grandmaster ships, avoiding along the way, again, quick thinking from Thor, Loki's incredibly predictable betrayal and the Grandmaster's forces and take it, Grandmaster's ship, through that big red devil's anus 
all the way back to Asgard. Absolutely swelling with pride when Thor, for, for once, once, actually not only anticipates the betrayal, but then follows through on his right, own anticipation. So People can grow. At that moment, Hela reaches Heimdall's stronghold in the mountains outside the city. And also at that exact moment, Heimdall realizes she's there. <laughs> what is the good of being all seeing if you wait till she's on the fucking threshold to, to tell anyone? I think we need, we just need to define it better. I, it just feels like it's, <laughs> it just doesn't work the way it should. Listen, it's a great and heroic Heimdall showing, a wonderful Heimdall movie. However, there are multiple times where literally the moment that a threat of mortal peril is mere feet away, only then does he say, she's yeah. here. We just need to have a little bit more anticipatory instincts here, I think. Thor goes to deal with his big sister, tasks Valkyrie and Banner with getting the citizens of Asgard to safety. The big fight ensues. Valkyrie, Banner, and Heimdall fight Hela's forces on the Rainbow Bridge. Loki arrives with another of the Grandmaster's ships to ferry the population to safety and to cover their escape. Scourge sacrifices his life. Whales for Scourge? I don't know. It's tough. I, you know what? Here's the thing. He was a... Can Let's we just, do it. I don't feel so good. At, at least acknowledge that he was about though he disagreed with it internally, he was about to carry out a mass execution on Hela's orders. Well, he orders. did stand idly by as Hela carried out a mass <laughs> execution. I mean, she slaughtered an entire she army, did. right? And he was just hanging out. So that's bad. He also smuggled himself aboard the He's escape ready vessel, to leave. hidden in a cloth. So that was tough too. But... A sacrifice is it a sacrifice, was. you know? We love our redemptive arc here at Binge Mode, even if the entire redemptive arc takes place in the span of 15 seconds. Great work, I, I, Let me also just say, I, I really enjoy this big fight. I think there's, like, great, uh, some really fun, like, peaks and valleys in the fight. The geography of it kind of, I don't understand quite how it works. Like, there's, some people are fighting by the Grandmaster ship, and then there's, and other heroes fighting from Asgard out to the ship. And then it's like, I can't figure out where, where are the bad guys coming from? Where are they? Like, I, it's just like, we're fighting them, but where are they running from? I just, that's, but it, that's a very nitpicky thing anyway. Can we get some whales for Fenris? Is it too soon? Fenris is just going back to the place that Fenris was. Again, they're all gods. They'll be back. Fenris is not dead dead. Fenris is just like... Maybe Fenris is on Sakaar. Also, Fe yeah, that's the other thing. Fenris didn't... We didn't actually see Fenris die. Fenris got punched over the falls. That's it. Fenris yeah. can swim. Fenris is fucking 50 feet tall. Could have ended up on Sanctuary. Yeah. I mean, we've, <laughs> we've seen where these, where these wormholes take you. Okay, I'm pivoting in real time. Fenris, spinoff. Let's go. Thor valiantly battles Hela. She tears out his eye, but with help from a vision of Odin, he focuses his power and staggers her, temporarily, but staggers her with the power of his godly thunder. Still, Hela is too strong. While she's on Asgard, she can never be defeated. And so, clarity in full. 
dawns for Thor. What is this prophecy that he's been seeing? Ragnarok, Surtur, tells Loki he has to plunge the crown into the eternal flame, triggering Ragnarok, destroying Asgard, the place, in order to protect the people and breaking Hela's power. No bells for Hela. She's fine. Again, she's the goddess of death. She'll be back. <laughs> Thor takes his place as the king of Asgard to lead his people to a new home, Earth. In the mid-credits stinger, Thanos' capital ship finds the Asgardian refugees. Uh-oh. Man, this was a short trip. In the post-credits, the Grandmaster is captured by the Sakarian revolutionaries. The goddess of death thing? Pretty high on, on the list of... It's all right there in the name. What was anyone expecting, really? Well, I guess that's why Odin had her locked up, although, you know, obviously (laughs) probably not the best long-term solution for this kind of family squabble. Classic Odin, you know? Oh, my beautiful darling firstborn. I know what I'll call you. Goddess of death. (laughs) Jason? Yes. Hey, Sparkles, here's the deal. If you want to get back to ass place, we have to get to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is exile. Let's talk about the film's development. Thor Ragnarok was released in November 2017. It is the fifth film of phase three of the MCU, third film of the ongoing Thor series. Creative team, producer Kevin Feige, directed by Taika Waititi, who did a fantastic job imbuing this uh, film with a sense of adventure and high comedy. His focus was clear from the get-go. Make his own movie, not the third Thor movie. As he told Collider's Tommy Cook in 2017, for me, this is my full one. I can't do it. I've seen the other films and I respect them, but I can't spend too much time thinking about this as a threequel because then I'll get tied up too much in respecting what went before and respecting what's come after. Thor Ragnarok has to be a standalone film because this could be the only time I do this. I just want to make my version of a Marvel film in the best way possible. And thank God for that, folks. Yeah. As Watiti told The Hollywood Reporter's Aaron Couch and Mia Galupo in 2017, the play that Loki throws for himself was a key part of honoring that past legacy while forging a new one. It's a, you know, it's a very Wes Anderson move, the play, the play within a movie. It always reminds me of, of Aria watching the play in Bravos. Yeah, it reminds me of, it reminds me of Rushmore for some reason. <laughs> Quote, we were making fun of what happened before, but also honoring the groundwork that Thor 1 and 2 had done for me. If it were not for those two films, I wouldn't have been able to be as irreverent and have as much fun as I did with this one. I would still be setting up characters and setting relationships. I was also able to say to everyone who loves those movies and who has come in expecting a certain thing from this film, that this is the moment where it ends at this play. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Uh, he's, of course, returning to direct Thor oh, Love and God. Thunder in Phase yes. 4. And in a July interview with the BBC's Alex Stanger, Watiti described the script as so insane, we cannot wait. The script, initially penned by Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost, writing team, Eric Pearson came in to finish up. And how about the cast? Some familiar faces, some new faces. Let's run through them. Obviously, our 
Thor faves all return, including Chris Hemsworth as the Thor we know and love, except a completely new Thor, (laughs) new energy, new vibes, humor, levity, charm on full display. And it is so wonderful. And we're not the only ones who felt that way. Chris Hemsworth was delighted, delighted by the tonal shift of the third film. As he told the New York Times' Dan Coy's quote, I just ended up being the straight guy, he said, referring back to the prior films. Sort of the guy from another world who the joke was on him half the time. I wanted a little more wit and charm. In that same New York Times piece, YTD said, quote, this is the most human that Thor's ever been. And that's that's so true. That's so crucial to what works about the film. Luckily, the quote continues, <laughs> This film's coming out on Earth, and the audience will be predominantly human, so I think they'll relate to him much more than they have in previous films. Wow! I mean, listen, there's no (laughs) shots, but Thor 1 was mid, and Thor 2 is bad. So, you know, I don't think there's any any doubt. Let me put it this way. Captain America, Iron Man, Thor... Guardians of the Galaxy. There's no doubt that the early Thor films were the weakest of the standalone Marvel non-Avengers stuff. The leveling up here is considerable and considerable, drastically alters the way that we think about the character in the franchise. Who else returned? Tom Hiddleston as Loki. What a wonderful showing as always. Just a delight. An absolute delight. Anthony Hopkins is the all-father. Relaxing comfortably <laughs> on the cliffs of Norway. Just, just being like, I locked your sister in a pocket universe for eternity. She's she's coming now and she's really mad. Bye. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins <laughs> playing Loki, playing Odin though. That's during good stuff. the the during the That's play. Oh shit. The knowing <laughs> little glances, the Self-referential applause. It's wonderful. Idris Elba as Heimdall. Mark Ruffalo, of course, as Banner and the Hulk. We get a Benedict Cumberbatch showing in Doctor Strange. This is is actually really fun because, of course, Doctor Strange had not entered the Avengers yet at this point. So this is the first non-Doctor Strange movie that he appears in other than the shout-out on the rooftop in Winter Soldier. This is the full continuation of the stinger that we had teased in Doc Strange. And as... As alluded to, ever so briefly, The Warriors 3, albeit not Lady Sif, busy filming blind spot of all the quotes that we have shared over the course of Binge Mode Marvel. This is absolutely one of my favorites. When asked during the Ragnarok press junket to comment on the quick demise for The Warriors 3, Kevin Feige said, quote, they had noble ends. I guess. <laughs> they get fucking curb stomped. They don't even get to like take one pretty good swing at Hella. She just like mops up. Hogan at least gets one good line. He gets to call her a demoness, which is yeah, great. He gets to like stand up to her. But, <laughs> but the rest of them get fucking washed. Man. How about the new faces, Jay? Run us through it. Kate Blanchett as Hella fantastic in a really uh, performance that is like crackling with menace and wit 
she gets to be funny as everyone does in this film. I love, you know, like I love the, when she's in Odin's treasure room and she's like, fake, weak, That's not bad. smaller weak. than I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Tesseract earning faint praise that feels colossal compared to the absolute <laughs> savagery that every other treasure gets. The, I, it's calling the the, the the casket of ancient winters weak is just absolutely brutal. It's like, brutal wow, okay. For Jotunheim. I mean, she's fantastic. She's just so great. Uh, making her Thor's sister is, of course, a change from comics canon where she is just the independent goddess of death. Um, and Loki's spawn. Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, based on the folkloric character of Brunhild and actually... Her name is Brynhild in the in the in the film, but it's never mentioned. In a 2017 interview with Yahoo's Kevin Palloway, Pearson explained that the story initially featured a romance between Thor and Valkyrie before the writers redirected. Quote, we didn't want to start from that place. It was like, let's give Valkyrie her own story that connects with Thor. And if it makes sense for them to get together, then great. You've got two really good looking people. Spoiler who could fight, and who'd probably be good together if the story went there, but it just didn't. It became more about the mutual respect and also dealing with her PTSD. She's someone who's drowning her sorrows in the bottle, and I just thought that was such a cool thing that you don't often see in these movies. Somebody dealing with extreme guilt and shame in a colorful Taika Waititi-directed hilarious background. I mean, that's true. It, they did it in Iron Man 3, but that's, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. I love when uh, Thor's like, I think it's great that there's a, a <laughs> sect of warrior women. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love women. Not in a creepy way. <laughs> Maybe too much. <laughs> Just a big admirer. Uh, Jeff Goldblum as, as the Grandmaster. Oh, my God. What a, what, a, what a rendition. Hilarious line after hilarious line. He is the collector's sibling. What a come up for those two. Boy. Wild stuff from them. Carl Urban, always great in anything. Here the is great as Scourge. Shouts to the Eomer heads out there and the Billy Butcher heads and the Bones heads. Why not? And the Bones heads. All, and the, the, all, all heads all for all the Carl Urban work. Uh, we have Taika Waititi himself voicing Korg, the Cronin. Korg. And Waititi mocapping for Surtur with Clancy Brown. Providing the voice work. <sighs> Jack Jeffcoat himself. I mean, the number of, of Star Wars characters he's voiced is astounding. It's right? kind of crazy. Or portrayed Clancy in live action, Mandalorian. Just an incredible voice. And I love to hear him. What a fun, fun, fun cast. So good. And what a fun movie. 93% among critics over at Rotten Tomatoes. 87% among audience members. Fun fact for you. 93% was, at the time the highest critical rating for any MCU movie since the very first one, since Iron Man back in 2008. Since been surpassed, but it was quite a mile marker. And the box office, good, really good. 315 million domestically, 539 million internationally, 854 million globally. And that gets us to the key question. We know the answer, but let's hear it anyway. Do you, Jason Concepcion, co-host of a podcast on which you have said multiple times this is possibly your favorite Marvel movie like this movie. <laughs> Tell us yeah, why I you love it, it. I mean, I just, I think it might be my favorite. It just is, you're laughing all the time. You know 
from the second it opens and you kind of like do that pan up into Thor in the cage, but then it flips over so you don't know which side is up. And he's uh, giving you this like really funny exposition-y winking monologue about where he's been and what he's been doing. You know it's going to be different. And that energy just continues throughout. Again, the level up between Thor the Dark World and Thor Ragnarok is just beyond measure. It's off the charts how good it is. The action is great. The acting is great. It looks great. Kind of hard to go wrong when you're like, as I will mention in the Sanctum, talk about uh, when you combine two of like the greatest Marvel arcs in the company's history, Walt Simonson's run and Planet Hulk, and they combine those things in a in a really fun and original way. They did just enough referencing to the original comics material so that the comics fans can enjoy it. It was it's just great, great, great fun, and so, and honestly, so funny. The dialogue is sharp. It's like constantly winking at you and winking at the genre. There's just like a level of meta commentary here that is uh, absolutely fantastic. And every, every scene just crackles. Like Thor going to 177A Bleaker, oh having God, a chat with, that with Doctor Strange, is so fucking hilarious. Like, like Cumberbatch's reaction when Thor's like, you could have sent an electric mail. Yeah. Do you have a computer? No. And then he's like, <laughs> like Doctor Strange is like, okay. It's like that. I, that could have gone on forever. Yeah. There's and there's so I, many. I love the moment when he's like could have walked. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Thor realizing that with Odin's help, that he is imbued with the power of thunder, like he is the god of thunder. That had that really lands like emotionally. There's all these like really fun arcs that absolutely tie together. I thought it was great. And 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 the ending is is super creative. Like who would have guessed actually they're going to destroy Asgard to save it. Really just a great movie. Yeah. I I love it subverting the expectation of how prophecy will play out in the story. Yeah. The combination of the heart and the humor is just on full yeah. display the entire time and I think it, you know, to, to your point about the comedy and how fully it lands, it's amazing actually that it continues to be true no matter how many times you rewatch it. Like, it, it, just because you know the joke, you know the line of dialogue that's coming, it doesn't make you laugh any less. You actually appreciate yeah. it more each time you return to it. The colors, that Jack Kirby influence of the, of the artwork, and as you noted, the really masterful incorporation of multiple threads of comics canon in a story that feels so original, like so wholly authentically new in itself. That's a really yeah. hard balance to strike, to be able it's to say, yeah. but both in terms of the, 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 the comics and MCU film balance and in terms of the standalone Thor film and a film within the standalone Thor franchise and then the overall work that the MCU, especially in phase three, the steep into the Infinity Saga has to do, the movie is just unapologetically itself and really breathes with, and crackles with life and, and identity and a sense of what it's trying to do and, and how it wants to do it 
But it also, even with, you know, the hand waves of the, uh, didn't didn't find them about the Infinity Gems to still then set up Infinity War so well with so many small little moments and choices. And of course, you know, Thanos arriving in the, in the stinger. And I think that we've, we've talked about this a lot over the course of the run, but there are these various fulcrums along the road of the MCU. You know, the, the evolution is in many, in many cases slow and steady, and then you hit these moments where it just feels like something seismic has changed. And this is one of those moments. And I think that that's what I love the most about it. In a lot of ways, it feels like Ragnarok and what Taika Waititi did with Chris Hemsworth's portrayal of Thor, with the script, yeah. with the tone of the movie. That is a reminder, I think, in of many ways, what the MCU's superpower really is which is the ability to constantly evolve and iterate, to be the thing that you know and are craving and expect and you can find the comfort there that you're seeking, the thing you've grown to love, but it can always find a new way to surprise you and a new way to delight you. And that's on display for every second of this movie from the moment that the Marvel logo crackles into flames until the closing shot. I, I love it. Has, has the rewatch cemented it for you as number one or are you still undecided? Uh, no, I think it is. I mean, it... You know, like Winter Soldier is probably <laughs> a better actual movie, but I just find Ragnarok so utterly watchable all the way through. And I think uh, your note about Hemsworth, I think, is a good one. We really understand that he's got some great comic chops in this movie. Like, they just let him go and be funny. He was kind of like the glowering you know, as he mentioned himself, straight man in a lot of the, uh, in the previous movies. Right. Imagine Infinity War without that discovery. It's not the yeah. same movie. It's not the same movie. Like, he is just so hilarious and fun in this film and able to be goofy in a way that you you wouldn't really expect from a movie based on the God of Thunder, this, uh, you know, ostensibly regal character who is next in line to the throne of Asgard, he brings a goofiness and a really accessible charm to the portrayal that is just like utterly fucking winning. You just like root for him so hard, even when he's doing stuff that would have felt out of character in, in previous iterations of the character in, in movies in earlier phases. Like th there's the moment when he's, when he's strapped to the chair, he's just arrived in Sakaar and he's getting the briefing from the, uh, the you know, the, the voice that is welcoming him to Sakaar. And he starts like just screaming. Yeah. He's like, ah! <laughs> yeah. It's just hilarious the way he does it. And it doesn't feel cowardly or that it in any right. way like undercuts the right. heroism of yeah, who Thor is. It just, yeah. it just absolutely works. works. And there's a yeah. million versions of that throughout the movie. That's hard to do. And Hemsworth pulls it off. That's part of the reason that this uh, movie just fucking crackles. He pulls it off just like Mjolnir pulls him off or like a <laughs> Oh my a God, it pulled you off. <laughs> the hammer pulled you off. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, let's talk about the actual movie. When we first find Thor on Muspelheim, it's been some time since we've seen him in the MCU. When Thor left us and his fellow Avengers at the end of Age of Ultron, he did so 
with a vow to solve the Infinity Gem riddle. Someone has been playing an intricate game and has made pawns of us, he told Cap and Tony at New Avengers Facility. And once all those pieces are in position... Ominous, hanging silence. (laughs) He was still haunted by the vision that Wanda had planted in his head and the clarity that he then found in the water of sights. Extinction, he heard Ultron say as he bathed and Eric helpfully stood there watching him. In some ways, the opening of Ragnarok is a deliberate shift away from all of that history, all of those declarations, away despite, again, the film's myriad Infinity Gem connections from Hela's fake Infinity Gauntlet dismissal in Odin's vault to Loki's longing look at the Tesseract, which of course pays off in Infinity War, to the Thanos Sanctuary ship stinger arrival that ultimately sets the stage for Infinity War's opening act— to distance itself as much as it can from the necessary shared work and harmony of the Infinity Saga. It's its own movie. It's its own thing. See, I spent some time on Earth, Thor says to his skeleton pal in the hanging cage. Fought some robots, saved the planet a couple of times. Then I went searching through the cosmos for some magic, colorful Infinity Stone things. Didn't find any. Even the Marvel Studios opening logo catches on fire. In other ways, however, this opening, despite the the gem search hand wave that that the quote provides, despite the two years that have passed since Ultron, despite the gleeful and carefully cultivated irreverence, keeps Thor exactly where we found him, exactly where we last left him, hung up on, on a prophecy of sorts, right? Consumed by the prospect of a doom that he has foreseen and feels responsible and determined to forestall. It's a long story, Thor says, but I'm basically a bit of a hero. This self-referential focus on his heroic pursuits is a through line of the movie and a really charming one presented as it is with the Watiti-Hemsworth mix of sincerity, earnestness, and just wacky, goofy absurdity. As always, Thor's sense of self helped cast a contrast between himself and Loki, but it does something else. On the heels of Thor's absence in Civil War, it gives him a chance to show us once more how he views his role as a hero, just like Tony and Cap did. One of the great delights of this movie is that it puts Thor and Hulk, the two original Avengers who were not part of the Civil War battle, against each other in combat, the thing that they and we miss getting to see in that capacity. Though, of course, Hulk and Thor punching each other is absolutely nothing new, as the (laughs) dents in the helicarrier from the Avengers can attest, and as many comics clashes can. Uh, And then immediately subverting that by having them pair up, realizing that the way through their shared exile is together. Thor is one of the most approachable heroes in the story. Despite being a god, he loves people. He just wants to save them and drink and maybe fall in love with them. And yet he finds himself on a path time and time again that casts him apart. It is the burden of his station as the Odin son, still now at the film's opening, a prince of Asgard, god of thunder, and a student of the cosmos. He has a sense of scope and history that many of his fellow Avengers could not hope to possess. Think of how uh, shocked Banner is to be on another planet. Right. And Thor's just yes. like, yeah, you were, on, you were on one, and now you're on <laughs> now two. you've been on two. <laughs> now you've been on two. I love that. (laughs) That's why his experience at Age of Ultron unmoored him so much. And it's why, despite all the time that's passed and the failure to find the stones themselves, he's still focused on saving someone from something he believes only he can see. Yes. 
I've been having these terrible dreams of late, he tells Surtur. During their really just hilarious opening exchange every time his chains spin him round. He's like, hold on. (laughs) Out of eyesight, he has to pause. Asgard up in flames, falling to ruins, and you, Surtur, are at the center of all of them. Then you have seen Ragnarok, the fall of Asgard, the great prophecy. Now, as is so often the case in great fantasy stories, we miss you. Cersei now and always, Thor will wind up fulfilling the prophecy that he's seeking to prevent when he orders Loki to put Surtur's crown into the eternal flame, bringing about Ragnarok in order to send Hela to her doom. But in Thor's case, that will come not from the typical foolishness or hubris that often defines those decisions, but from newfound clarity and wisdom. Thor is, is, is such a chill bro so often yes and amid his hammer thrusts and bicep flexes it can be hard to always take the moment to pause and really appreciate how much he has grown the the maturation that we have gotten to to witness but ragnarok even among all of its revelry continues the mcu's tradition of showing us and thor that sometimes when you lose something you're able to gain something else he found his humility in New Mexico. He found clarity about his own desires in Greenwich. And here he'll find the wisdom to make extraordinarily difficult choices about what unfolds on Asgard, about forgiving Loki with, albeit more caution this time, about forgiving himself. (laughs) Sometimes that kind of journey, even if it's one you can only fulfill with teamwork and companionship and the love and support of other people, has to start with the clarity that you find alone. Okay, so Ragnarok. Tell me about that. Walk me through it. (laughs) (laughs) Our time has come, Surtur says, sketching out the eventualities that led him back to full might. The comics canon, of course, I will dive into more in the Sanctum. Surtur has been waiting to. Like so many of the figures in this film, he's been biding his time, and his function in Thor's overall canon speaks to the, at times inescapability of isolation. Thor's enemy thrives through this cycle, lying in wait, gathering strength until he can rise up to fulfill his mission and destroy Asgard. And from his vantage point, he can see the opportunity that separation from others affords. Your absence has left the throne defenseless, he tells Thor, who is chipper here, but constantly weighing this very variable. How can he protect Asgard if he won't take the throne? A struggle that will follow him after begrudgingly accepting the throne at film's end, of course, as he ultimately will abdicate again. How can he protect Earth as he's sworn to if he's not there? He's only one person, one Avenger, strong though he is. Strongest Avenger! (sighs) And the more responsibility he assumes, the more he leaves untended when he heads off on some mighty quest. It sounds like all I have to do to stop Ragnarok is rip that thing off your head, Thor says, failing, though reasonably in his defense at this moment, to anticipate the consequences or true nature of things. But Ragnarok has already begun, Surtur laughs. You cannot stop it. I am Asgard's doom, and so are you. Now, there is some real Durin's Bane Balrog vibes here from our guy Surtur. This is really clever language, at once offending Thor's sensibilities and entire sense of self wrapped up as fully as that is in the notion of protecting his home, but also plotting the course to come, priming Thor and us for the choice that he'll have to make to sacrifice 
bridge and metal and stone in order to ultimately protect flesh and blood. But even that extreme foreboding is is just drenched in the film's signature snark. All will suffer. All will burn, Serger says. Wow. Thor replies, that's intense. (laughs) Even the moment of... It's so good. (laughs) It's amazing. Even the moment of mutual declaration is imbued with comedy. You know, to be honest, seeing you grow really big and set fire to a planet would be quite the spectacle. But it looks like I'm going to have to choose option B where I bust out of these chains, knock that tiara off your head, and stash it away in Asgard's vault. You cannot stop Ragnarok. Why fight it? Because that's what heroes do. Wait, I'm sorry, I, I didn't time that right. But the movie works so spectacularly because of moments like that, because the humor does not actually stifle the sentiment. It buttresses it. It elevates it. As Harry thinks to himself in Half-Blood Prince as he sits in mourning, anticipating the lonely road that he knows he must now travel. Quote, it was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. This is Thor's totally Ragnarok-y version of that sentiment. You have made a grave mistake, Golden son. Surger says as Led Zeppelin's immigrant song begins to play. I make grave mistakes all the time. Everything seems to work out. (laughs) As Watiti told Business Insider's Jason Garasio in 2017, he used the song on the sizzle he put together for Feige and Marvel back in 2015. It was ingrained in the vision for the film from the jump. And it really just adds like a level of epicness. Of course, the lyrics completely fit. Valhalla, I am coming. (laughs) Scourge, who could not possibly have a more iconic intro than Heimdall was an idiot, helps to maintain that perfect tonal balance. This Ragnarok business is pretty heavy, but when the guy suddenly operating the Bifrost is too busy jacking off with his shake weight to do his job, how can you help but smile even if you're drenched in fire dragon brains? Love the shake weight bit. Hard to catch a guy who can see everything in the universe. So it should be easy to catch Heimdall. <laughs> Scourges reveal that Odin charged Heimdall with negligence of duty is Thor's first clue that something is not correct. Right. The second is the giant statue of Loki. And the third is the play about Loki, which... Fowden and seemingly all of Asgard are watching as the realm burns around them. I just couldn't help myself, says Matt Damon playing Loki in the play. I'm a trickster. This Loki is what we call telling on yourself. In an interview with The Hollywood <laughs> Reporter's Aaron Couch and Mia Galupo, Watiti explained that he introduced the play into the script in order to remind everyone of where we left off with Thor the Dark World, Loki faking his own death. Quote, I don't know if people would remember him from the end of Thor, the Dark World, as sitting on the throne. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Incredible. Why the play is the vehicle for the reminder, as the director said, quote, it's the most narcissistic thing Loki could do. It's so perfect. What a perfect choice. You absolutely can believe that Loki would do this and would go there every day to see this play thrown in his honor. 
Thor duped by Loki in Dark World, despite boasting numerous times that he would not be duped by Loki in Dark World, is, to his credit, wise to the ruse right away here. The little blue icicle may have melted Odin's heart in the play, but the all-father that Thor knows would not behave this way. Not at all. Because, of course, he'd be too deep in the Odin sleep to attend the play in the first place. Of course. That's That's really the first clue, is that Odin's awake. Something's wrong. Though, to be clear, it is not as as if Thor's inner eye is functioning flawlessly. Do me a favor, he says. Lock this away in the vault so it doesn't turn into a giant monster and destroy the whole planet. That's as he hands over Surtur's crown. Like father, like son, let's put every high-value item that might Mm -hmm. destroy our planet in one place and let's have it be on the planet that we don't want those things to destroy. I still have some notes on the vault, but... It'll work out in this case. Loki's moves, however, are easier to anticipate now. As Thor will later tell him, he's becoming predictable. That's the last thing Loki would ever want to be. And to his credit, it will cease being true in Infinity War when he'll surprise us all with his tender gesture. You're really going to make me do it? Thor asks Foden here. Do what? You know nothing will stop Mjolnir as it returns to my hand. Not even your face. (gasps) That's quite a threat. I'm going to let Mjolnir crash through your face unless you reveal your falsehood to all of these. I mean, how Loki has stabbed him how many times, including as when they were children. You get hit in the head with a hammer. That's just what happens sometimes. It's just got (laughs) to happen. (laughs) Off to Shady Acres. I swear I left him right here, they say. Right here on the sidewalk or right there where the building's being demolished? Great planning. How was I supposed to know? I can't see in the future. I'm not a witch. No, then why do you dress like one? Thor is, of course, outraged that Loki is alive, not because he doesn't want him to be, but because this lie is just him going too far. It's a real Johnny Fairplay grandma died moment. Mm -hmm. from from Great survivor call out there. Yeah. It's just, it's just, Ah, so this is the level you will go to. I got it. I saw you die. I mourned you. I cried for you. I'm honored, Loki says. Even this moment of tenderness is injected with the stuff that maddens Loki. Selfie requests with Thor that make him roll his eyes. But it's not like things are great for Thor either. Sorry Jane dumped you, one of the selfie takers says. Mutual dumping. Come on. Mutual dumping. Yeah. But Odin, we learned, was not actually taken away with the building rubble. He remained in an exile of his own volition. If you knew where he was, why didn't you call me? I have to tell you, he was adamant that he not be disturbed. Your father said he has chosen to remain in exile, Strange says. After bringing Thor to 177A Bleaker and absolutely just bamboozling him <laughs> time and time again with magic and, and logic and the internally shifting geography of the study they are in and you don't have a phone no i don't have a phone but you have sent an electronic letter it's called an email yeah do you have a computer no what for (laughs) one of the absolute best moments in the movie odin chooses to spend his exile in norway back where he fought the frost giants long ago back where he nestled the tesseract with filch Frey until the red skull found it the place that not only connects, of course, to actual Norse mythology, much like Sir and Ragnarok and all of this, 
But the place where those who survive Ragnarok in this film, and then those who, uh, fewer numbers still, will survive the encounter with Thanos in Infinity War, will build new Asgard in a place rife with history and possibility. The Odin that Thor and Loki find looking out into the sea isn't at all the cocksure commanding king that we last saw. He knows that the end is upon him, and he has made his peace with it. But he is still looking, of course, in signature Odin fashion to dispense lessons. Lessons that carry real value, yes, and lessons that contain truths that should have been shared long ago. Odin's exile is as much the product of exhaustion and shame as it is of necessity. He needed to reflect. He needed to process his own shortcomings. I failed you, he tells his sons. It is upon us, Ragnarok. Thor, of course, thinks that his victory over Surtur prevented this, but Odin knows that there are variables that Thor hasn't considered because he doesn't know that those variables exist. Hella. No, Odin says it has already begun. She's coming. My life was all that held her back. Uh, Pops, do you mind telling us who you're talking about? The goddess of death, Hella. Well, Again, just on the branding front alone, that is an alarming update. Yes, not good. (laughs) I have some follow-up questions and concerns. Now, sadly, it is not a surprise that Odin, who kept Loki's identity from him, would keep from his sons the fact that they had a sister. His shame has once again led him astray into great cost time and time again. Odin's death sequence, especially in a film full of noise and color and cheer, is is somber and gentle and, and honestly quite moving. But we can never lose sight, even in this tender, touching sequence, of the culpability that Odin bears for the secrets he has kept and the choices he has made. It's honestly insane. Terrible. <laughs> it's fucking awful. <gasps> oh, my God. What do you think the note he... Well, what note did he give to the mural painter when he asked them to cover up the entire history I, I, I of his realm-gathering... Conquest with Hela. Really bad. Like, I I also wonder if it's, is it like a Magor the Cruel thing where he killed all the original painters? Mm. Like, no Mm. one's going to talk about this? Anyway. I would believe that. Easily. Right? Her violent appetites grew beyond my control. Real Westworld vibes here. So I imprisoned her, locked her away. He tells them that Hela draws her strength from Asgard. Cutting her off from the source was the only way he could stop her. Why did he also have to cut his family off from the truth, though? I mean, like, what did you think would happen? Like, at some point, someone else is going to have to make sure she doesn't get out, right? So you're going to have to tell somebody. This is a secret that definitionally you cannot keep forever. Yeah. Not that if he could have kept it forever, it would have forgiven or excused the choice, but he knows, yeah. as he says here, that his life force is the only thing keeping her at bay, which means that once that life force ceases... Yeah, come on. She it's will exi- It's kind of, kind of an existential threat to the realm, <laughs> folks. He's like fucking Heimdall, waiting to the last possible moment to mention that a threat is on the very doorstep on which you stand. I mean, she'll be here literally the second I die. (laughs) (laughs) Which is now, by the way. Great to see you. As we'll see when Hela brings down the palace murals to reveal the secret history beneath the original murals, this was not a passive omission. It was an act of fiction, a deliberate decision to plaster over an entire phase of Odin's life, 
of Asgardian history, of the creation history of Asgard. Like, literally, it's founding. But what have another group of magical Marvel beings taught up? The bill, as Mordo tells Strange, comes due. And it has here for Odin and Asgard. Thor, bless him, says that they can fix this together. But all Daddy needs to do is he's got to go to sleep. He's This is it. This is the big sleep, too. Not one of these little Odin sleep naps. This is the big one. This is forever. I'm oh, on a different by the path way, now. you have a secret sister, the goddess yeah. of death. <laughs> I'm on a different path now. This you must face alone. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Odin. What the This fucking guy. I mean, you know what? Frigga was the only thing keeping him in line. Barely. Barely. And now it's just, he's just unleashed. Forget about it. Listen, I don't mean to be cold, but Frigga died four years ago in the MCU timeline. What has Odin been doing for those four years? Now, yes, under Loki's spell. Yeah. But what about after he broke free? Head back home. I mean, in the words of Pusha, what he's been doing is hiding a child. Oh, it's just awful stuff for my guy Odin, who is leaving his <laughs> heir and other son and Heimdall and all the citizens of Asgard in the firing line to clean up the Armageddon level mess that he swept under the rug. With the help of the Valkyries who all got fucking wiped out. I mean, Odin, what a bad fucking guy, period. <laughs> like, period. Bad guy. Oh, God. And what a daughter Hela is. The first encounter with Hela as Odin's golden flickers <laughs> flit away on the wind is an absolutely harrowing, titanic display of might. The only comfort is that she's so formidable and so threatening right from the jump that that Loki and Thor have to team up to try to stop her. I'm Thor, son of Odin. Really? You don't look like him. And then Loki says, perhaps we can come to an arrangement at which point she says, you sound like him. It's just perfect. She does her best Joffrey Neil sequence here, but Nothing about the way that Hela conducts herself allows you to laugh at her or mock her the way that you would with Joffrey because she is not ridiculous. She is fully formidable. In our Dark World pod, you explained Mjolnir's really uncommon, astounding power. And we have seen that on display throughout the MCU. And it is nothing for her, nothing for her to stop and crush this. And for Thor, even more than his actual imprisonment on Sakaar, losing Mjolnir cements that sense, that sense of exile for him. He remains staunch and brave and determined without it, of course. And when Loki calls out for the Bifrost, Thor screams in opposition. He, he wants to keep challenging Hela. He wants to try to fight no matter how hopeless it seems. Because remember, of course, that's what heroes do. But so much of his sense of self is tied up in Mjolnir. And he'll find that again in in a fashion with Stormbreaker and Infinity War crafting another weapon fit for a god from the heart of a star. But Thor reaches out 
for Mjolnir. It's the first thing he does after landing on Sakaar. It's reflexive. It's like a phantom limb for him. The fact that it's not there answering his call. And as the absolutely delightful exchange between Thor and Korg reveals, the hammer is not just a tool. It's not just a weapon. You rode a hammer? No, I, I didn't ride the hammer. The hammer rode you on your back? No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast and it, it, would, it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The hammer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground, up into the air, and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it. And it really is. Mjolnir is a part of Thor, just as Asgard is a part of Hela. But in a sort of inverted, corrupted, and putrefied sense of parallelism, I'm Hela, <laughs> she says. And Scourge, after seeing Volstagg and Foundrel die in an instant, replies, I'm just a janitor. Scourge would love Sakaar. Imagine how many times he'd get to sift through a scrap pile and say, Behold! More stuff. Uh, I will talk later today in the Sanctum about the legendary planet Hulk cannon that inspired the Sakaar sequence. But for our purposes here in the Arc Reactor, let's focus on the thematic resonance of the choice. It's a place, as Thor here is on his memorable entrance to the Grandmaster's chambers. It's the collection point for all lost and unloved things like you. The Grandmaster's propaganda about everyone being loved and valuable is a hollow shame. Everyone is just a plaything to him. But for Thor, this will prove true because the nature of his experience will make it so. Being away from Asgard, knowing it's under threat from Hela and not currently under Thor's own protection just fuels him. I am the god of thunder! <laughs> Unfortunately, it's tough for that fuel to let a fire when there's an inhibitor chip in your neck. Wow, I didn't hear any thunder, but I did for fingers that was like sparkles? <laughs> <laughs> the Grandmaster is a cheerful maniac, melting his own cousin, Carl Oath's spell. <laughs> it's another great moment where, where Thor, Hemsworth depicted here, like this reacting to the smell. It's like, how many fucking ogres and trolls and various like sulfur stinking demons has Thor smote over the years? But this, it just like, this moment just works so well. And it's- so That's how you know it's funny. bad, man. Burnt toast mixed with <laughs> liquefied feces and intestine. Ugh. Rough. The Grandmaster is not guided by any sort of idealism, any kind of philosophy or dogma. He just, like, likes to have fun. He likes being in charge. He's in love with his own power. He is completely deranged. And he likes to make a sport out of the suffering and death of other people. That's what, it's what he likes. He's been around for millions of years. And he's bored of everything else. Except the orgies on his fucking <laughs> ships. Don't touch anything. I love, I love the, <laughs> the orgy moment is so good. And Thor's like got his hands on the steering wheel already and is wondering what sort of Ugh. honestly, it just he's gonna end up on Peter Quill's ship. So he needs to be prepared for ejaculate all over Ugh. the inside of a space vessel. I'm sure Quill took no time at all to cover the inside of the the Benatar, the new ship with the same level of ejaculate. Did you do you miss the Red King at all and that aspect of the Planet Hulk plot? I th this 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 choice feels just so apt for the the tone yep. of the movie, having yeah, the absurd agreed. menacing force instead of the 
purely evil and very serious menacing force. Yeah, I I agree. And I think it would have muddled the issue. Like the big bad is Hella, right? Right. This is as fun as Sakaar is and as colorful as the Grandmaster is. That's really kind of like the detour to get back to Asgard and Hela, to have the Red King there and have Thor have to fight him or Thor and the Hulk together have to fight him. It's just, it would be too much. I I, I think this is perfect tonally for for what they were looking to accomplish with this film, and it just, it just worked. I mean, <laughs> the Grandmaster, there's something, while he is utterly charming and every scene with him as evil as he is, is so fun. There's also just something so like off-putting about this person who is like weirdly uh, sensitive about the terms that his minions use about other people and like, and, and very concerned about optics, but also who is like all powerful and, uh, gets his kicks off of the deaths of many, many other people. It's just like the that conflict of of vibes and energies is pro- is part of why this uh, film is so fun. Yeah, I mean the ability to take somebody who proudly boasts that he's thinking about and had been thinking anyway about an execution that day, a public execution yeah. that day, and then have the button that Bruce thinks will activate weapons on yeah. his leisure vessel instead activate and it's my birthday sing-along and the parade of fireworks that end up being the thing that kill topaz is number two it's just like such a brilliant brew of oddity it's it's awesome loki unsurprisingly works his way seamlessly and quickly into the grandmaster's good graces i've gained his favor he whispers to Thor, who is weeks behind him on the timeline, despite the Bifrost chucking him out mere seconds after Loki. Time works differently on Sakaar, as the Grandmaster tells them. I've never met this man in my life, Loki says, as the Grandmaster calls Asgard Asgard and calls the God of Thunder Lord of Thunder and sparkles. Again, the movie is very much in on the joke, leaning into the things that you might feel a compulsion to laugh at and making it part of the story. Thank the gods for Korg. Yeah, I'm actually oh. a thing. Love I'm a Korg. being. <laughs> we know we got to call. We got to shout out. Korg is is Steve's favorite character. One of his favorite performances in the MCU, and he loves the loves the rock paper scissor joke line so much. Well, I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock paper scissor joke for you. Korg and Meek introduce again such heart and hilarity that that beautiful brilliant combo into the film and they're also as jason as you will outline more later today representative through their time with with hulk in the planet hulk comics of that unflappable bond that forms when you find yourself in a state of exile thinking you are alone and then realizing that the other people who feel that way can help you get out of it the warbound Every character in the Grandmaster's Contest of Champions is in, a, is in a, a state of exile, a state of hopelessness in some fashion. And the only way to break through it is to band together, of course, through Korg's revolution, through Thor's challenge, through characters who have been staunchly determined to act unilaterally and never let anyone in, like Loki and Valkyrie joining the cause. How'd you end up in here? Thor asked Korg. 
Ah, well, I tried to start a revolution, but didn't print enough pamphlets. So hardly anyone turned up except for my mom and her boyfriend, who I hate. (laughs) It would be really easy after what each of these characters has suffered through to just give up, to just give up and give in and to succumb to their circumstance and their fate. But long before their escape attempt, they're united by their spirit, the inclination to not let that happen. This whole thing is a circle, Korg says, of the arena that holds them. Real shades of Jorah running and catching himself in the circle around the House of the Undying and Garth as Khaleesi vanishes. Yeah, it's, Khaleesi! It's very much a, this whole place is like a circle. <laughs> but their conviction is kind of like a circle too, unending and enduring, even when it doesn't really make any sense for it to be so. The warped parallels between Thor and Hela continue in terms of their desperation for people to understand who they are. Thor tries to convince the Grandmaster that he is to be treated with the respect of a god and Valkyrie that he represents the throne that she swore to protect. Hela protests as well. It's come to my attention that you don't know who I am, she says on Asgard. Amazing moment. (laughs) An incredible regard me energy carrying through her entire crusade. Whoever I am, she says to Hogan as he defies her. Did you listen to a word I said? (laughs) By the way, shouts to uh, Hogan the Grim for getting off a banger before being speared by the spears that Hela calls up from the earth. Mm-hmm. Go back to whatever cave you crept out of, you evil demoness. As always, the distinction comes with intent. Hela's is clearly stated, quote, our destiny is to rule over all others. She's appalled, of course by the lies Odin painted onto the walls. And to be fair, a mural with our good friend Laufey is hysterically dumb. I can't get over painting a mural in honor of the treaty with Laufey. It's just it's wild. Odin, <laughs> proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. Mm. Good Odin summation, didn't just honestly. exile himself. I mean, yeah, that's fair. He, yeah. Odin didn't just exile himself. He locked away Hela and their history together. It's fitting that the Eternal Flame is her chosen tonic. The perpetual nature of it appeals to her as much as the power of it, a testament to her own sense of unflappable will. Thor's intent, of course, has long been the opposite of her stated declaration to rule over all others. To thwart people like Loki before or Hela here who think that way, who try to suppress other people and to protect those whom others would seek to control. It's it's really actually quite sad to see him praying, saying his farewell to Odin, despite all the ways in which his father failed him. He was still his father and still his king, but he did fail him and lie to him. And Loki is ready, of course, to observe that very fact. Hurts, doesn't it? Loki says when he projects himself to visit Thor in the pits of the arena, being lied to, being told you're one thing and then learning it's all a fiction. But even here, Speaking to the only person who really understands, Thor knows that he is alone. Casting stones at Loki's mirage, calling out his sorcery. To which Loki replies, I mean, you didn't think I'd really come and see you, did you? This place is disgusting. <laughs> Loki's sales pitch is, as usual, a shameless ploy for self-preservation. Let's stay here and take out the Grand Master. Forget home. Forget all those people who need us. But of course, Thor can't do that. It's not in his nature. In Dark World, when they were arguing about the wisdom of loving a mortal, Loki said, satisfaction's not in my nature. And Thor replied, surrender's not in mine. And you feel that here for both of them. 
When Loki says he'll have to go it alone like he always has, Thor can't help but smile because all he's ever really wanted, as he will tell Loki later in the really great elevator scene, is to do this together, to lead and fight and live with his brother. What would you like me to say? He says to Loki here, full of despair. You faked your own death. You stole the throne, stripped Odin of his power, stranded him on earth to die, releasing the goddess of death. Have I said enough? Or would you like me to go back further than the past two days? <gasps> Amazing moment. Harsh but fair, again. If only we could all be like Korg. This is so funny. Piss off, ghost. <laughs> he says, chasing Loki. He's freaking gone. Valkyrie is in self-imposed exile, too, drowning herself in drink, meaningless distractions, repressing the memories of Hela's absolute extermination of the Valkyrie sisterhood. When Thor hears that she's as guardian, he thinks they'll find common ground. But Val's history isn't currently a rallying cry for her, though it will become one later as she joins the fight against Thanos and emerges as a new leader on new Asgard. Thor is overjoyed when he sees her Valkyrie marking, proudly boasting about how he wanted to be a Valkyrie when he was a kid and how much he loves women. Val isn't a traitor or a coward, as Thor insists that she must be here. She's fighting through pain of her own, brutal and bloody and defined by loss. It's one of the reasons that she and Hulk have bonded, as we see that they have, even though she doesn't know who Hulk really is, doesn't know about Banner, and Banner is, of course, not in control here, not as, isn't even present here. But that clarity is all to come. First, a friend from work. Thor's compulsion to catch up Hulk on all that's happened while standing in the arena, everybody around crying out for blood is just so classic. He's longing not only for a way out, but for that companionship. It's me, he says, Thor. Now, the sun may be getting real low, as we hear multiple times in the movie and the call, call back to Ultron. but. Not low enough to avoid Thor getting his taste of the old Hulk Loki ragdoll smash sequence. Amazing moment when Loki up in the up in the owner box shouts out, Yes, that's how it feels, and then turning to the Grandmaster. I'm just a huge fan of the sport. <laughs> it's a vicious battle and a frustrating one for Thor. You're embarrassing me. I told them we were friends. But in a moment of near peril, Thor channels the thunder, channels the lightning. He'll still need the ultimate push, the reminder that he can do this from Odin in the climactic battle as Hela nearly bests him later in the film. But he's not the god of hammers, as Odin will tell him then. He's the god of thunder. And Mjolnir as the Allfather will help him see. And as he's discovering here organically on his own, you know, we give credit rightly to Odin for, for the assist in that sequence, but Thor is making this progress here naturally. It's how he channeled his power. It's not the source of the power itself. And so it's fitting that this clarity will come to Thor in two scenes. One, here on Sakaar, when he is surrounded by reminders of everything that he's lost, and then one back home where it's reinforced that no one place or one object actually makes him who he is. Hulk, as Thor quickly sees back in the champion's chamber after their battle, has not found this kind of clarity. Hulk always Hulk, Hulk says. He's able to communicate, able to share details of how he arrived on the planet via the Quinjet, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, and how his he's been passing his time, Hulk's butt on full display, his hog and hoglets out to the air. Not playing hide the zucchini here, Jay. Just showing it all. Let's go to the farmer's market. And within that meat somewhere, Banner is buried deep down. Thor offers a bargain. If Hulk helps him on Asgard, he'll get Hulk home too. Hulk's reply, Earth hate Hulk. A nod to the Planet Hulk canon and also to where we left Bruce in the MCU when he fled at the end of Age of Ultron, afraid of Earth seeing him clearly, afraid of the damage that he had wrought. The difference between Hulk casting himself away in the Quinjet and Hulk's fellow heroes sending him off is, you know, quite considerable. But the root is the same. The inability to trust Hulk even when in command of his faculties, even when well-intentioned, to not bring about complete catastrophe. Hulk has counterintuitively found acceptance and belonging in exile. He's a god here. He's a king. He's a champion. The carnage he unleashes isn't something to suppress. It's precisely the source of his value which must be incredibly freeing for him, albeit sad. He believes he can only find love and purpose through this savagery and violence. We see how it wounds him when Thor, in an effort to hurt him during their disagreement, says, Earth does hate you. The, the only thing he fears more than the damage he can do is how that damage might hurt the people that he loves. Thor, meanwhile, calls out to Heimdall, not knowing that Heimdall has worked to shepherd the people, the Asgardians, into the mountains, but trusting that Heimdall had found some way to survive and challenge Hela's rule. No matter how far away Thor is, no matter how desperate his situation, he can trust in this bond. And there's something so comforting and mooring in that. When Thanos kills Heimdall in Infinity War, didn't see that one coming, I guess, Heimdall, <laughs> Thor's anguish is supreme. Heimdall was not just a guard. He was an ally. He was a friend. And he was a constant, reliable presence in Thor's life. Help me see, he says. And Heimdall does. And Heimdall can see, to his credit, for once, one thing clearly. They can't stay here. This isn't going to work. He tells Thor that Hela draws her power from Asgard, which we hear many times throughout the film, and that there will be no way to stop her unless they do it now. And his guidance is actually quite poetic. It plays as simplistic, but it's, it's, it's really profound. You're on a planet surrounded by doorways, he tells Thor. Go through one. And of course, the next line is, which one? The big one. But the meaning there is clear. The path back from isolation isn't always easy to identify, but you, you have to start by taking a step, by picking a doorway to move forward through. That means convincing Hulk and Valkyrie to join up. Are you so thick-headed you can't tell when someone's hiding all the way across the universe and wants to be left alone? Valkyrie, it turns out, knows all about the family squabbles of Odin and the boys. She's faced Hela before, deployed by Odin to challenge Hela's wrath when Hela was attempting to break out of her bondage. I already faced her once back when I believed in the throne and it cost me everything. That's what's wrong with Asgard, the throne, the secrets, the whole golden sham. Thor can tell her truly that he agrees with this, that he walked away from that very throne and web of, of deceit. He doesn't want to go back to Asgard so he can rule. He wants to save the people who, if left unprotected, will find themselves exactly like those in Sakaar. Sport for a megalomaniac lunatic banished for all intents and purposes from the lives they want to live. They're all united in that way. 
what ultimately pulls Hulk back. The video of Nat, a tether to his humanity and the kind of life that he would wish to live, even if he doesn't think he deserves to or can. Banner, welcome, strongest Avenger. Uh, what? (laughs) The face that Chris Hemsworth makes there when he says, oh, that is so good. When the Grandmaster deploys Lackey, uh, excuse us, Loki, I love when, when Valkyrie calls him Lackey, and Valkyrie to find his champion in the seductive Lord of Thunder, seductive God of Thunder, Thor protests. We see once again that for Valkyrie, exile isn't just about physical location. It is about mindset. I don't help anyone, Valkyrie says to Loki. And this is the way to avoid reliving her pain, to avoid forming new attachments that could lead to her suffering more of the loss, more of the grief down the road that defines this past that she has repressed. But Loki brings it to the fore here. And we can see when Loki forces Valkyrie to relive the fight against Hela that she didn't just lose the entire team of which she was a part, the family, the sisterhood of the Valkyrie. She lost somebody specifically whom she loved. As Tessa Thompson has stated in a 2017 interview with Amy Nicholson for Rolling Stone, Thompson explained that she had pitched YTD on portraying Valkyrie as bisexual based on her comics canon, telling Nicholson of this moment in the film, quote, there's a great shot of me falling back from one of my sisters who's just been slain in my mind. That was my lover. Now, we certainly hope that this will be incorporated fully into the film and will be a part of Love and Thunder. And in 2019, when promoting the upcoming movie at Comic-Con, Thompson said, quote, she needs to find her queen. That will be the first order of business. For Banner and Thor, the losses they're grieving are in the much more recent past, but the freshness of the wounds make the future ramifications easier to see. I just told you, if I turn into the Hulk, Banner tells Thor, I am never going to come back again. And you don't care. Thor is quite thrown by how Bruce is behaving. He needs someone compliant, and that is not Bruce, who's adjusting his crotch because Tony's fucking pants are so goddamn tight and spewing justifiably anxious thoughts. One one second here. We must pause. This is the only part of the movie that doesn't make any sense. It's a great-looking Tony Tony outfit. Tony's pants are like clown pants, as we have chronicled many times. I I just think the issue is that Banner is just girthier, a bigger guy than Tony. That's the issue. He's just got like... But his pants are like... Not only the bell bottoms, they're hanging in the crotch. Maybe the zucchini remains the zucchini even when he shrinks down. I know, but again, I... I guess it's just that the Hulk is used to wearing pants that literally stretch to infinity, like, and cannot rip. You know what I mean? He's just used to that kind of very, very leisure wear Mm -hmm. stretchiness. Send me through a wormhole into a trash heap planet where beings great and small alike battle in the contest of champions. I'm in. Tell me that Tony's pants fit tight in the crotch. And I draw the line. The Iron Man suit, yes. We know he says it's tight around the gooey bags, but his pants are huge. Anyway, carry on. Maybe the fact that I was trapped for two years inside of a monster made me a little weird. As unmooring as it's been for Bruce to realize that he's been gone for two years, the the prospect of being permanently lost inside of his alter ego seems very near, very real. He's not just trying to figure out how to get off Sakaar. He's trying to figure out how to avoid permanent exile inside of another creature that lurks within his own mind. This is ultimately the common ground on which the Revengers end up forming. 
they've all found themselves in a similar state and have realized that the real loss would be succumbing to this. I spent years in a haze trying to forget my past, Valkyrie tells them. Whether the haze was of their own making or out of their control, it's a haze all the same. Sakar seemed like the best place to drink and forget and die one day. Well, I was thinking that you drink too much, and then you probably, uh, and that probably was going to kill you. I don't plan to stop drinking. Oh, but I don't want to forget. And that's the key, the desire to remain present in their own lives. And so to the devil's anus, we go. We get an Einstein Rosenbridge shout out. We miss you, Jane Foster. Even Loki wants in, or so he'd have Thor think. But Thor has finally gotten hip to Loki's tendencies. Loki... I thought the world of you, he says in the elevator. I thought we were going to fight side by side forever. But at the end of the day, you're you and I'm me. I don't know. Maybe they're still good in you. But let's be honest, our paths diverged long ago. And Thor really means that. And it's, it's quite sad and sweet. I love that scene. But this time, the emotions that Thor is genuinely feeling and experiencing don't inhibit his ability to see Loki's intentions clearly. Dear brother, becoming predictable. I trust you. You betray me round and round in circles we go. See, Loki, life is about, it's about growth. It's about change. But you seem to just want to stay the same. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you'll always be the god of mischief. But you could be more. That is a incredible moment. But it also speaks to the real exile, ultimately. Just failing to make any kind of progress in your own life, failing to adapt, failing to change. And Loki, of course, doesn't want that. He is so ambitious, wants always to move forward toward the next goal. You do seem like you're in desperate need of leadership, he says to Korg and co. when they arrive and free him from the inhibitor chip. Why, thank you, Korg says. <gasps> Bruce, it turns out was able to use one of his PhDs to fly the spaceship, at least for a while. It's quite <laughs> a return. That. Use one of your PhDs. <laughs> Val says she never thought she'd see Asgard again. Bruce, who until returning to consciousness on Sakaar had never been to another planet or realized he'd been to one at least, looks down at the smoldering realm and he takes a shit on it, which is like unkind, I think. Thor sees his own face blasted off the murals, staring up at him from the floor and they... They've returned to a place that means something different to all of them and is now unrecognizable. But they don't need to see the paint on the wall. They need to see their own purpose, and they end up doing that. Thor has realized this, and so he summons Hela back to the throne room where he sits on the throne holding Gunnir. Amazing scene. His father's spear. It seems our father's solution to every problem was to cover it up, Hela says when Thor comments on her keen eye for interior design. I understand why you're angry, Thor says. And you are my sister and technically have a claim to the throne. And believe me, I would love for someone else to rule. But it can't be you. You're just the worst. <laughs> Fucking great line. As is the moment where, despite the chasm that divides them and the one that divided each of them from Odin in their own fashion, they parrot his words as they surge toward each other. Father once told me that a wise king never seeks out war, Thor says. Hela continues, but must always be ready for it. Ah, Odin. Bringing the family together after all. How lovely. They're fighting each other on their shared home in the hall that their father built, but their war is not ultimately for who controls the same shared ambition. It's a reckoning between their two diametrically opposed worldviews. Hela's is one of dominance, a victory so sprawling and complete that it would amount to being alone 
in her supremacy. And Thor's is a recognition, hard won, gained over time. Remember where we first met him, brash and arrogant though he was, that there is no victory actually in such an end, in such an outcome. Hella, like the purple guy on the chair, Thor sketches in his little team Thor shorts, is just another opponent moving pawns on the chessboard and Thor isn't going to play the game anymore. She deigns to call herself the savior of Asgard in front of him and tears out his right eye. Ooh, now you remind me of dad. And Thor sees Odin as Hela attacks him, driving him ever closer to death. But he's not alone in this effort to thwart her. Bruce has chosen to join the fight despite how he fears remaining as Hulk stuck in that form because he's recognized that there is something worse than his own fear. And it's the prospect of a life without friends or allies or people you're willing to fight for. Heimdall, standing tall, sword out to defend his people on the bridge. Very brave. Loki returning with the revolutionaries. Unbelievable. Absolutely iconic arrival. Emerging through the smoke and the haze. Your savior is here. Did you miss me? Wearing his horned helmet, just like in the statue. Thor walks across the cliffs of Norway toward his father in this vision and toward his own clarity as well. Are you Thor, the god of hammers? Odin says, hmm. That hammer was to help you control your power to focus it. It was never your source of strength. It's too late, Thor says. She's already taken Asgard. To which Odin replies, Asgard isn't a place. Redemption in this kernel of wisdom here from Odin, at least. It never was. This could be Asgard, he says, gesturing around him. Asgard is where our people stand, even now, right now. Those people need your help. And they get it. A surge of lightning courses through Thor's own body, the vessel for this power that Mjolnir used to be. But it's not actually about the lightning, as he says, as Immigrant Song kicks in once again. The bolt didn't actually slow her down or hurt her in any meaningful way. It's about the certainty he found in the people he returned to protect. Asgard's not a place, it's a people, he tells Loki and Valkyrie, parroting Odin's words. And the ones that Heimdall will soon echo as well. This was never about stopping Ragnarok. This was about causing Ragnarok. Surtur's crown, the vault, it's the only way. Big monster. Hulk, that's such a funny moment when Hulk is just like, oh shit, Surtur, I'm gonna fight him. I love that. <laughs> Thor's like, you moron. You moron. <laughs> the very Big thing monster. Thor feared, life without Asgard, life without the home he has always known is the thing that unlocks the future for him and his people, a future they hope to build on Earth, not knowing that Thanos is coming but knowing that the reckoning that came for Hela didn't have to be theirs as well. What a movie. It's a great one. Jason? Yes? Oh, that's a crown. I thought it was a big history lesson. So please gather the masters of the mystic arts. Head to the Sanctum Sanctorum of your choosing. Maybe there's tea. Maybe there's beer. Definitely a place to put your umbrella. Tell us everything we need to know about the comics canon that most influenced Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok is, it's just one of the very best Marvel movies. And it's helpful that it pulls from two of the best Marvel stories ever. Walt Simonson's iconic run, various aspects of that iconic run, as writer and artist on The Mighty Thor, and writer Greg Pak with artist Carlo Pugilayan's Planet Hulk. The former tells a bunch of stories, but mainly tells the epic tale of Asgard's confrontation with Surtur, and then Mission of Vengeance against Hela, and Thor's 
sort of final, at least final for Simonson's run, clash with Loki. The latter, Planet Hulk, is the tale of Hulk's forced exile to Sakaar and his rise from enslaved gladiator to planetary revolutionary. Walt Simonson spent four years in the Mighty Thor, beginning with November 1983's Thor 337 and ending with August 1987's The Mighty Thor 382. Simonson was the writer for that entire stretch. He lays down his pencil after issue 367, at which point Salbusima picks up. The run is collected in The Mighty Thor by Walter Simonson Omnibus. If you have some money laying around and you want to support your local comic shop, it is a handsome addition to any bookshelf. Reading it again, uh, I was really struck by uh, how Simonson's patience and mastery of the comics form helps create this feeling of epic storytelling. Here's the example. Issue 337, the first issue of Simonson's run, opens with images of suns exploding in the darkness of space. The, the title of the issue is Doom. Far beyond the fields we know, the core of an ancient galaxy explodes, and a molten ingot of star stuff is left behind, but not left alone, reads the narration. We see great red hands use a pair of huge tongs to grasp that molten ingot, and a shadowy demonic figure grinning as he goes about his work. Mark well this figure, the narration reads, and listen, listen, can you hear it? And the figure slams the ingot down on a massive anvil. The sound of thunder reverberates through a billion, billion worlds. And then in huge letters, doom, one exclamation point. This is, of course, Surtur, the demon king of Muspelheim, ancient enemy of Asgard, Odin, and Thor. The early issues of Simonson's run, however, don't deal with this. They're about the introduction of uh, Beta Ray Bill, the Corbinite guardian who shockingly proves worthy of lifting Mjolnir, the adventures that ensue from there. Similar teases, though, play out at each successive issue. Surtur's creation, a towery, fiery sword steadily taking shape each time we return to this imagery. In October 1984's Mighty Thor number 348, Malekith the Accursed acquires the Casket of Ancient Winters and launches an attack on Earth. And it's not until the final pages of this issue, now 11 months after the beginning of the run, that Surtur, sworded hand, finally steps into the spotlight and speaks. He's been teasing this for a year. Quote, sons of Muspelheim, your servant has completed his task. The portal is frozen. The winter has come at last to the realm of mortals. Now shall the sword twilight... Speak that all who live may hear its voice and tremble. Now, of course, the appearance of Surtur signals the beginning of Ragnarok, Asgard's inescapable cycle of destruction and rebirth, of which Surtur and his sword are the catalyst. As the threat to Asgard gathers, Odin tells Thor and all the warriors of the realm the story behind Ragnarok's origins. Again, saving really important information up, saving it for the last possible moment before telling anyone. <laughs> in the comics and in the movies. Odin, Love it. get it together, my guy. So it turns out, <laughs> long, long ago, when Odin was just a young godling, he and his brothers, Vili and V, rode through the gates of Muspelheim 
in search of adventure. They're just riding mm. around looking to do what, stuff and see stuff. What could go wrong? Yeah. What could go wrong? They casually ask to see uh, the manager of the realm and are brought to a lake of fire out of which emerges the big red demon himself. He welcomes the sons of Bor to Muspelheim and asks if they have any questions for him. Yeah, they do. Is it true, great Surtur, Odin asks, that one day you shall destroy the nine <laughs> worlds with fire? Yes, absolutely <laughs> true. Surtur then brandishes his sword and points over to this imposing stone brazier out of which a flame is burning. There beside you burns the eternal flame of destruction, the flame which will ignite the sword that I may set the nine worlds alight. And the sons of Bor are little trolls, little wise-ass little godlings. So of course they're like, okay, what if we break your dumb sword and put out the flame? And Surtur is then like, Okay, well, I'm going to attack you. So he swings a sword at him, at the at the boys. Odin, Vili, and V call on uh, some kind of magic, and they combine their forms into one giant god warrior, a match for Surtur's imposing size. The two giants swing their swords at each other. They crash together with an incredible force that causes the boar boys to be uh, thrown into their individual forms once again. Good news is... is Surtur's sword, Twilight, is shattered. Odin grabs the eternal flame, like, a, like an Olympic rider, and he makes a run for the gates of Muspelheim. To cover his escape and ensure that Surtur cannot follow them to Asgard, Villian V used powerful magic to cause the gates of Muspelheim to just vanish. The cataclysmic release of energy kills Odin's brothers, but their disembodied magic, the birthright of the sons of Bor, surrounds Odin infuses him with this great power that we would come to know as the Odin power. Add dead brothers to the list. This guy, what can you say? Odin has guarded the Eternal Flame successfully, we have to say, ever since, on Asgard. The cycle of Ragnarok, of course, cannot truly be broken. Now Surtur has returned he has laid waste to an entire galaxy to build his forge with which to remake Twilight. There is no doubt that he will come to Asgard, ignite the sword in the eternal flame, plunge it into the earth of Asgard and kill the entire realm. The battle against Surtur is just tremendous fantasy action in comics. It's amazing. Odin calls Beta Ray Bill and the Lady Sif back to Asgard from their cosmic adventures after the end of that arc where Beta Ray Bill is, is introduced. He and Lady Sif strike up a, a relationship and they fly off into space together to just have adventures. They come back to help Asgard. The massive armies of Asgard gather on the plains of Vigrid and even Loki the Enchantress, her power more the Executioner, and the warrior Tyr answer the call to defend Asgard. The villains are back. They're ready to fight. The battle itself rages uh, on two fronts over the span of several issues. On Earth, Beta Ray Bill and an army including Baldur the Brave, the Norn Queen, members of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, and thousands of Asgardian warriors attack the portal uh, through which Muspelheim's demons are attacking Earth. And on Asgard... Thor, Loki, and Odin wage a desperate fight to basically keep Surtur, who is on the one-yard line, from igniting the sword <laughs> in the Eternal Flame. At that battle's climax, Odin takes on Surtur, god to god. They start wrestling. Odin's sons 
slam on the ground in order to open this chasm through which they hope Sirtle will fall. Odin sees this and not willing to take any chances. He slams Surtur down into the chasm with his own body, Gandalf versus Balrog style. And then the earth closes up and both disappear. Now here, Hela enters the story much like she does in Thor Ragnarok. She senses that Odin is about to expire. And let me tell you, the goddess of death wants to claim that soul. This happens in April 1985's Thor 354. Sensing Odin is on death's door. She arrives on the scene to claim the soul. But of course, Odin is gone. She returns to hell after a brief fight with Thor. And here, things kind of bubble for a little while. Various side stories occur. And in October 1985's Thor 360, Thor addresses the Asgardian army. Now, uh, because Surtur had destroyed the Rainbow Bridge, the thousands of Asgardian warriors who had gone to Midgard to fight the demons were just trapped there. And that leads to some really great comic relief, including like Fandral wearing like a full <laughs> Sopranos running suit. <laughs> it's just like, oh anyway. They Hanging come out back. with Polly Walnuts. Love yeah. It. Thor and, and uh, Beta Ray Bill managed to transport the, uh, the warriors back. And Thor is like, hey, guys, great job. The war is over. But I've got some bad news. Odin is gone, presumed dead, has not been seen since the fight with Surtur. Frigga rules until a new king can be chosen. Can't Frigga just be the head queen? I don't understand this part of the process. Anyway, Thor then tells the troops that, okay, we have unfinished business. There are still wrongs which need to be righted. Quote, far below us in the kingdom of Hela, mortal souls lie languishing in bondage. These are the victims of Malekith. Um, he had fed thousands upon thousands of mortals, mostly New Yorkers, it seemed, ancient, uh, enchanted fairy food, and this caused their souls to be sent to hell and their living bodies to be used as slaves for the Dark Elves. So Thor uh, makes a big speech and he rallies the Asgardian warriors to follow him into hell on a absolutely unprecedented raid into hell to rescue the souls of the mortals. December 1985's Thor number 362 is just simply one of the greatest single issues in Marvel history. Thor, his face now covered by a scrap of his cape, he, he makes a mask out of his cape because Hela had touched him and her touch means death and it had scarred his face and he doesn't want anybody to see this. So he wrapped his cape around his face is leading the rescued mortal souls and the Asgardian army out of hell. But of course, Hela's ghoul army is just hot on their heels. The Asgardian warriors managed to seize uh, Galarbrew, which is the golden bridge which spans the river Gjol, the border of Hela's realm. Thor, of course, hero that he is, is like, I will stay behind and hold back the demons while you, Balder, and everybody else escort the mortals back to Asgard and then back to Midgard and get out of here. But then suddenly Scourge, the executioner, considered by most of the heroes of Asgard, the citizens of Asgard, as simply the Enchantress's lackey, just a, a very pathetic minion at best, not worthy of a warrior's respect. He steps out and he strikes a savage 
seemingly cowardly blow from behind, which knocks Thor out, knocks him cold unconscious. Baldur and the warriors are like, what? Oh, shit. Like, it's time to kill Scourge. But then Scourge is like, hear me out. Quote, they made a fool of me, Balder. They laughed at me. Except you, Balder is too kind to laugh at Scourge. But whenever they laugh, I hurt inside. Maybe I die a little. Now I think I am dead already. So I will stay behind and the last laugh will be mine. You and Thor have a drink when you are next in Asgard and laugh Scourge's last laugh together. I will hold the bridge. Woo! Amazing. Absolute <laughs> chills. I, you cannot, <sighs> I cannot overstate the impression that Scourge's last stand made on me as a young comics reader the first time I read it. I was probably like 10 or 11. I don't know. I, you know, and it was just, it's just absolutely epic, 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 epic stuff. And surely comics readers throughout time uh, were, had the same impression because obviously Taika would use that imagery in the film. The misunderstood and often misled Scourge alone on the bridge, seeking in death the honor and respect that had eluded him all his life. He's got an assault rifle in each hand. He's gunning down waves of Hela's demons. And then when he runs out of ammo, he's swinging the rifle like a club. The, The rifle is shattering on the demons. They are rolling over him like a wave, and yet not one of Hela's soldiers sets foot on the bridge. And then narration over these iconic panels reads, quote, they sing no songs in hell, nor do they celebrate heroes, for silent is the dismal realm and cheerless. But the story of the Galabru and the God who defended it is whispered across the nine realms. And when a new arrival asks about the one to whom even Hela bows her head, the answer is always the same. He stood alone at Galabru, and that is enough. Chills, I'm telling you. What an incredible uh, story arc and an incredible single issue of The Mighty Thor. Just great stuff. The legendary sequence, of course, is referenced in the film. First as foreshadowing when, when Scourge is showing off his stuff. He's got his two M16s. Dez and Troy. As soon as he saw that, I, I saw that. You I was knew. like, oh, we're yeah. going to get it. It's great. Yeah. And then, of course, in the final battle when Scourge leaps off the transport to hold the bridge against Hela's demons. Now let's... Let's talk about Planet Hulk, which we've mentioned many times, but let's go through it again because it's such an important part of this film. Uh, No one would ever describe Hulk's stories as quiet, uh, but it seems to me Banner and his gamma-irradiated alter ego, they're quietly the toughest of Marvel's major heroes to write for. I think for evidence of that, just consider how many times the Hulk has, has undergone changes, drastic changes. You know, Thor is kind of like always Thor. He may lose his hammer. He may lose an eye. He may get his arm replaced by a metal arm, but he's always himself. The Hulk is changing all the time. First, he was gray and only transformed at night. Then the transformation became tied to his emotional state later, specifically to anger. The struggle between different aspects of Banner's personality became eventually the central conflict of Hulk's stories. It became a story about split personalities. In the late 80s, Hulk became gray again, took on this tough guy mafia persona. Bruce and the Hulk have existed as completely separate beings. They have existed as a fusion in one body with Banner's intelligence and Hulk's strength. Hulk is almost unimaginably strong, and there just simply are only so many ways to tell a Hulk smash story. And there's almost no way that the Hulk can truly cut loose, on Earth anyway, without the resulting collateral damage casting him as, as... almost a pure villain. Planet Hulk, then, is a a 
wonderfully creative solution to this Hulk problem. Fed up with Hulk's unpredictable nature and the immense destruction he leaves behind, Reed Richards, Doctor Strange, and Tony Stark lure Hulk into a spacecraft and send him across the galaxy. We picked your destination carefully, Reed Richards says in a recorded message, a lush planet full of vegetation and game, but no intelligent life forms. There will be no one there you can hurt. And as we all know, Reed and Tony and Doctor Strange, they're all so smart. Reed and Tony, specifically two of the smartest individuals on the planet, and they have never been devastatingly wrong about anything ever <laughs> in their careers as heroes. So, of course, everything worked out, and Hulk lived forever in peace on this tranquil planet uh, filled only with wildlife. Wrong, of course. It's just devastatingly <laughs> wrong. Uh, Hulk finds himself on Sakaar, the fourth planet in the Tayo system. He is immediately captured, sold into slavery, made to fight for his life by the Emperor Angmo II for the entertainment of the crowd. Hulk's arrival on the planet and his success in the arena are interpreted um, as the fulfillment of prophecy by many on the planet. Hulk, uh, mostly against his will, becomes the symbol of planetary rebellion against the despotic rule of the Emperor a motley collection of former gladiators uh, end up forming his inner circle here, his warbound. There is Meek, the Unhived, who we meet in the film. He belongs to Sakaar's indigenous insectoid race called the Natives. Korg is a Cronin, a race of sentient rock creatures. No Name is a Brood, a race of parasitic aliens. Elokafi is a dissident member of the Sakarian imperial ruling class. Now, the revolution ends in... Uh, personal tragedy for the Hulk, which I won't spoil because mm. I think you should read this story, uh, mm. which is to devastating. Say, devastating, which is to say th basically the only way Hulk stories ever ended. Personal tragedy for the Hulk and Bruce Banner. Afterwards, in World War Hulk, the Hulk, literally angrier than ever, heads back to Earth with his warmbound to beat the shit out of Reed, Tony, Strange, and anyone else even tangentially responsible for sending him into exile. Also a great story. Check them all out. Black Bolt, you're also on notice, man. This Black Bolt, Amazing. man, gets fucking rung up. <laughs> Mal, it's a leisure vessel. The Grandmaster uses it for his good times, orgies, and nuggets and stuff. That means it's time to collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film, like so many Infinity Stones light around style. You go first! I will uh, definitely not touch anything now that I know that. Number one, yeah. Team Thor and Team Daryl, not canon. In our Captain America Civil War pod, we highlighted the wonder of Taika Waititi's Team Thor mockumentary project, a three-part series that explores how our golden-haired god was hanging out in Australia with his flatmate Daryl while Cap and Tony beat each other silly in Siberia. But the Odin son is not the only Ragnarok character who was present in the mockumentary. Part one also features Bruce Banner, who meets Thor for a coffee to discuss why the Avengers have not enlisted Thor in the fight. Tony even calls Bruce during the sequence. So obviously... Uh, in case there was any doubt, we must deduce from Bruce's presence in the short that Team Thor is not canon. Ragnarok clearly establishes that the Quinjet in which Hulk fled Sokovia is the one that took him to Sakaar and that Bruce has been trapped inside the Hulk's metaphorical trunk the entire time. There's no room in there for caffeinated beverages in Australia. Regardless, the shorts remain a, a, a joy, a true treat, and there are even more gems to revisit after rewatching Ragnarok. The whole premise, I'll just start my own team. 
Team Thor, of course, and it would be me and Daryl, just us, right? D makes the whole Revengers team forming sequence and Ragnarok even richer. And then the Grandmaster's concluding stinger in Ragnarok, in which he emerges into a brood of rebels, sets up the third installment of the not canon series, Team Daryl released as an extra with Ragnarok, in which Daryl is searching for a new housemate, which leads him to cohabitating with the Grandmaster, who needs a new assistant after Topaz's death. His stated mission, not hiding it, much like Hela, is to rule Earth. He enlists Daryl to help him declare his intent via a YouTube video that gets two views. Both are from them. the first time when they watch and then what happened the next one when they refresh the page. And then uses his melting stick. When band practice goes poorly. Very tough look for our guy, the Grandmaster. Number two, Loki, Sorcerer Supreme. Ah, speaking of our guys, the sequence of the New York Santum is as mentioned. Delightful. One of the best bits comes when Loki, enraged by falling through Strange's spell for 30 minutes, <laughs> appears again and attempts to best his new foe. Handle me? Who are you? You think you're some kind of sorcerer? Don't think for one minute you second rate, at which point... Big Steve blocks him like Pangborn protecting the glass. And all right, bye-bye. <laughs> Casts him through a portal to Norway. That sequence carries even more resonance thanks to uh, some contemporary comics canon in Doctor Strange 381, released on November 15, 2017, two weeks after Ragnarok's release, but teased ahead of the film's release. Loki becomes the new Sorcerer Supreme, inheriting the mantle from Strange, who instead works as a vet and talks to his wonderful pup, Bats. No spoilers about bats. Check it out. It hits. (gasps) Check out the run if you haven't. It is super, super fun. And as usual, Loki's particular way of seeing the world is at the heart of it. In an interview with Marvel.com's Sarah Cook, writer Donnie Cates teased the journey and Loki's role in it thusly. He's so much fun because you never know the rules of whatever game he's currently playing. So yes, he's probably using his role to serve his own needs. But what if his needs are altruistic? Is he still being selfish and underhanded if the result is a net positive? I'm not saying that necessarily is is the case here, but I wouldn't ever get too comfortable with how you perceive Loki and his intentions. Number three, the Grandmaster's Palace. Part of the fun, of course, of rewatching Marvel movies is searching for all of the Easter eggs that are hidden in plain sight. Sometimes the folks who make the movies actually tell us where to look. And according to Screen Rant's Alex Leadbeater's summation of Kevin Feige's statements at the Ragnarok press junket, Feige directed our attention to the sculpture work on the facade of the Grandmaster's Palace, saying that that was his biggest Easter egg in the film. Quote, the biggest Easter eggs are on the side of the Sakaran Palace, right, Taika? There are previous Grandmaster champions that we see, as one for the Hulk is being constructed, and those are all sorts of Easter eggs for the deeper comic universe that may or may not ever show up in the cinematic universe, but we thought it'd be fun to celebrate. The last part of that quote is particularly scintillating when we look at who those previous champions appear to be and then think about whether they could enter the MCU. As Feige noted, the top sculpture is an in-progress rendering of the Hulk, but how about the others below him? The upper left appears to be Beta Ray Bill, who Jason just talked about, a, a huge figure in Thor's canon. Next to him, Marvel's version of Ares, the God of War, not to be confused with David Thewlis, shouts to Lupin and <laughs> his Ares and Wonder Woman. The face below Ares seems to be by beast, while the lowest figure looks like Man Thing, the one time comics husband of Ellen Brandt, aka our pal Hot Wings from Iron Man 3. <laughs> the final face appears to be Dark Crawler. Great look for our guy here, the Dark Dimension. 
getting getting its shine out there in Sakaar. Man-Thing was briefly, briefly part of an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. storyline, so could the rest of these characters come into the MCU in a more fully realized way? Beta Ray Bill in particular would, would obviously thrill fans, and we were yes, really close to actually getting that in this movie beyond just a statue. We'll get him at some point. For sure. And it seems like ultimately this decision that they made to not do it here was the right one because you need time to do that right. Yeah. In an interview with, with Crave Online, Feige revealed that Ragnarok almost featured a cameo. Quote, there was a Beta Ray Bill, Feige told Crave, but it was so quick that you would have the same complaints that you have now. He was in it a little bit more and it just didn't do justice. And the feeling is if you can't do it justice, do it later. Number four, Throg and the Pet Avengers. Oh, I love Pet Avengers. <laughs> yeah. Pet Avengers is so good. The uh, Thor-Loki brotherly histories is always a rich text. And some of the wildest nuggets center on Loki turning into something to trick Thor, in this case a snake, or in the play turning Thor into a creature to best him, in this case a frog. The frog tail is a nod to the comics canon in which Thor briefly transformed into a frog and helped another non-frog who became one Simon Walterson, of course, a nod to Walter Simonson, who not only became the frog Puddle Gulp and worked with the frog Thor to fight a bunch of rats, but eventually boasted the power of Thor himself, thanks to a teeny tiny shard of Mjolnir that he wielded as Frogolnir. That's right, Throg, folks. Got a treat on October 3rd, 2020, when Donny Cates announced on Twitter that he'd be bringing Throg back in his current Thor comics line, saying, <laughs> this new Thor script I'm writing is maybe my favorite thing I've ever written at Marvel in a long time. Who knew writing a frog would be so much fun? Pet Avengers, assemble! If you wonder what Throg does like on a day-to-day basis, Throg hangs out in Central Park and fights rats. That's like his entire mission, is protecting the frogs. Sounds great. Of, of Central Park from rats. Noble work. He's Protect noble the Pet Avengers at all costs. I love it. Love the Pet Avengers. Bring them out. <laughs> Number five. He's a friend from work. One of the top moments of the film, as noted, comes when Thor, hair freshly shorn, new helmet, and non-Mjolnir weapons in hand, steps into the Grand Arena to meet his foe, the Grandmaster's fabled champion, and sees... Hulk's familiar green form emerged. Yes! Hey, hey, we know each other. He's a friend from work. And there is a heartwarming story behind how that charming, utterly winning line came to be, which Chris Hemsworth shared with Entertainment Weekly while promoting the movie at San Diego Comic-Con back in 2017. Quote, we had a young kid, a -a make-a-wish kid on set that day. He goes, you know, you should say he's a friend from work. Just amazing. Number six, just some of the many Easter eggs and nuggets. Stanley, watcher informant, returns to space yet again to cut Thor's hair before the gladiatorial battle. He does a great job. It's I hardly it. the only notable cameo. We get Luke Hemsworth. Shouts to Luke Hemsworth coming in from Westworld, coming in hot with his Westworld co-star, Sir Anthony Hopkins, playing his real-life brother in Loki's Asgardian play. Matt Damon plays Loki. Sam Neill plays Odin. As screenwriter Eric Pearson told The Hollywood Reporter's Aaron Couch and Mia Galupo, it was one of those don't tell your wife you cannot tell anyone situations. Tell me more about this, you fucking weirdo, Eric Pearson. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we were Damn about Damon situation. for this is so incredible. I know. It's really great. The play <laughs> references the events of Dark World, where, as we discussed in our Dark World pod, we meet a Cronin in that film who Feige said in the DVD commentary track was Korg. Obviously, Ragnarok retcons that moment since Korg and Thor don't remember each other, despite Thor absolutely obliterating Dark World Korg with Mjolnir. The breaker of Mjolnir, Hela, wields necro swords in the film, an update from her comics canon of wielding the Night Sword. The film's shape-shifting necroswords function similarly to the all-black necrosword, the symbiote that impending love and thunder villain Gore the God Butcher wields in the comics. In an interview with Collider's Tommy Cook in 2017, producer Brad Winderbaum cited Jason Aaron's run as a specific influence. The villain Gore has the very specific power of being able to manifest an infinite number of weapons. We drafted that idea and are doing a version of that for Hela in our movie. Fenris Wolf, good puppy, meanwhile, is Loki's Hold kid on. in the comics. A note to Fenrir and Norse mythology, which is a very weird family. Although they've kind of played that back. You don't see Fenris, honestly, much in the comics anymore. As are the Avengers, the point break activation code above the Quinjet winks back to Tony calling Thor point break in the Avengers. While Loki's astonishingly savage Hulk descriptor is a nod to the Savage Hulk comics line. Speaking of Hulk, Bruce's plunge to the Bifrost Bridge is a callback to Ed Norton's Hulk diving out of the plane above New York to transform into Hulk and take on the Abomination. Also, Bruce Banner being thrown out of a helicopter in the Ultimates in order to transform into the Hulk. And there are plenty of love that bit. I mean, it's such a great bit. (laughs) I mean, I I think that was they must have used it before. But the Ultimates one is the first time I remember really seeing it because, first of all, it plays out so well. You're not sure if. Banner is going to transform, and then he does. It just, it it works well. Anyway, next, a personal ode of Watiti's, who is the first indigenous person to direct a Marvel movie, the Commodore in which our pals escape, Sakaar is painted in the colors of the Australian Aboriginal flag. Finally, and wonderfully, are plenty of Ragnarok connections to the MCU canon to come. Among them, Loki does not just go to Odin's vault to put Surtur's crown in the eternal flame and bring about Ragnarok per Thor's request, as we'll learn... In Infinity War, he takes the Tesseract with the Space Stone in it. Jason? Yes. The red, the white. Just pick a color. Ridiculous. And just pick a winner. Because this season, we are debating the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of binge. refresher though everybody knows the rules by now we each pick a winner we each make a 60 second case in favor of our winner a 30 second rebuttal of the other person's winner and then the binge heads vote today pitt's siblings hella goddess of death ever heard of her it's possible you hadn't because of fucking odin and thor god of thunder steve flips a coin it is flipped heads it is tails hell yeah Hell yeah. Okay. Okay. I will go second. Jay, you go first. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Mal, hold up your Mjolnir again. The reason you can't see it is because my winner, Hella, crushed it in her hand. My gal's oh, been trapped in a Zoom pocket background. universe, banished by Odin after she helped him win all the realms. Turns out, why are there no Valkyrie around anymore? Oh, my girl, Hela, she wiped them all out. 
She's literally undefeatable. She kicks Thor's ass, is beating everyone's ass for the entire freaking movie. Warriors 3 never fucking heard of them because they're dead. All of the rest of Asgard, dead. Her, she draws immense power from Asgard, basically wins the realm. Yes, it gets destroyed because Surtur fucking goes on a rampage. That was Thor's whole bit. Fine. Oh, oh, but Hela proved herself, <laughs> proved herself the queen who should have been, showed herself more powerful than all of our heroes. Shouts to Hela, who just and that's owned time. everybody this entire movie. Get another hammer. So it's broken. I'm disturbed. I have to say I'm disturbed. <gasps> Okay. All right, Steve. Please begin the clock in three, two, one, go. I'll I'll wait to argue against your pick until my rebuttal, though I have some things to say. Here I'll argue in favor of the God of Thunder who learned one of the greatest lessons of all in this movie. It's not about anything you hold in your hand, though R.I.P. Mjolnir will miss you. It is about what you hold in your heart he has the lightning and the thunder inside of him, Jason. He is the god of thunder because of what he's learned, the power within. He no longer needs a way to channel it because he can channel it on his own through his wisdom and his courage. Manages to sniff out Loki's deception for once. Huge progress. Beats Hulk in the contest of champions. Needed The, the Grandmaster needed to activate the inhibitor chip, okay? Leads everyone back to Asgard. And has the wisdom to incite Ragnarok, sacrificing a place to protect the people and, and that's besting time. Hela in full. That's all the case. time I needed. It's a good case. Ready? <laughs> Great haircut, too. Three, yeah, I'm ready. Go ahead. Three, two, one. Gets his ass kicked every time he fights Hela. She tears his eye out. He's king for 35 seconds before Thanos' ship shows up. Anybody on the radar screen? Anybody scanning for alien vessels? Thor just like asleep at the fucking wheel. Yes, he rescues his people. They get wiped out five minutes after this fucking movie because there, nobody's watching the screens or looking out the window. He and Loki are just like, ah, brothers again. This is so wonderful. And then Thanos pulls up and kills him. And everybody. that's time. <laughs> Oh, my God. All right. I'm ready to make my rebuttal. Three, two, one, go. That 30 seconds that you just called out was longer than Hela had because she's buried beneath the shattered rainbow bridge, buried beneath her own ambition and her own hubris. You know what? Thor didn't want the throne, Jason. He didn't want her rule, okay? Hela, it was all she wanted. She was obsessed. And so she failed to see the threat that was right in front of her. Looks at Surtur's crown, looks at the eternal flame, walking through the vault, can't anticipate what will befall her. Bad pet owner. And that's boot. time. Failed Fenris. Failed herself. Well, we've made our cases and now it goes to you, the voter. Who won this episode? Is it Thor? Odinson, god of thunder, or Hela, Odin daughter, goddess of death. <laughs> Go ahead and vote. Well, friends, you were merely little blue baby icicles that melted these old fools' hearts. Just ask Steve Allman, Isaac Lee, and Zach Graham, our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, 
If you're looking for past seasons binge mode, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars Weekly, they're available for you to listen to in full for free exclusively on Spotify. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet, not the destroyed one, another one, to explore this story, and that you'll join us again next time for another Ask the Underscore. Until then, remember, binge mode isn't a place. It's a people. Hello, we are not available now. Please leave your name and phone number after the beep. We will return your call. Hello, this is Loki Laufson. Uh, I'm calling for Matt Damon. I've got an interesting opportunity for him for a role. It's it's going to be for, uh, let's say, the first run of the play. It's a play. It's going to be for two-week engagement. But if things go well, we're thinking it could it could run indefinitely. Uh, we're willing to discuss uh, salary, but I, I think we'd like to offer at the very first four or five enchanted goats. They fly. And also, uh, you know, like, let's call it 60 Asgardian gold pieces a week. He'd have to be out of, he's going to be, let's just say he's going to be out of contact for that time. Cell phone service, not really going to work there. So he's going to really have to dedicate himself to it. But I think it's an interesting opportunity. If you want to get back to me at L-O-K-I 69420 haha at gmail.com. Don't ask where I'm calling you from. I can't be reached at this number. Thank you very much. Also, do you know Sam Neill? Do you have Sam Neill's number? If you could uh, just email me that too.